Welcome to the podcast for Sunday, November 8th, 2015. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This past week, Jody and I had the pleasure of watching our son Ezra play in uh, his soccer games for the very last time. He's a senior at Judson University in Elgin, Illinois, outside of Chicago. Uh, And uh, this is the picture that they took after their final game in the rain and the mud and the cold. Terrible, terrible soccer watching weather. But we loved every minute because we got to see him play. We didn't get to see many of his games uh, as a college student. Uh, We're glad we were there. Ezra began playing soccer when he was five years old. He started with AYSO, American Youth Soccer Organization. Their motto is safe, fair, and fun, which means everyone plays even if they may not be that much of an asset to the team. Um, Whether they come to practice or not, they're part of the team and... uh, they don't, they don't keep score. They don't keep standings. The, the kids just get out. The, the goal of AYSO is to get the kids to want to sign up for next season. That's when you know you've had a successful team if all of your kids want to come back and play again. So he played this for a couple of years, um, loved it, had a great time. And then he decided to join a club team, a Hawaii Youth Soccer Association. This is where players settle into a particular position. They begin to learn strategy and techniques and And the coaches work on uh, building excellence and a winning tradition. And they have, uh, hopefully, a great time. But, you know, not everyone wins. Not everyone gets a trophy. But Ezra loved playing on club soccer. A few years later, he transferred to another uh, club team. Their name is Abunai. Abunai in Japanese means dangerous. And they were actually one of the best teams in the state in his age group. Uh, He wanted to play at a higher level. He wanted to be able to travel with the team to the mainland and to play in tournaments against really good teams from the mainland to improve as a player. And in fact, in 2010, their team from Hawaii, Abunai, won a national championship. Uh, They had to win the regional in Seattle, and then the championship was in Virginia Beach, Virginia. In high school, he played on the varsity team for four years. His school went to the state tournament three out of the four years. The one year they didn't make it, his freshman year, they lost in um, like the quarterfinals of their conference matchup, and they lost on penalty kicks in overtime. And that, had they won that, he would have been all four years. He also became the team captain his junior and senior year for IAEA High School. Well, after a lot of hard work contacting various colleges and universities, Ezra settled on Montreat College in Montreat, North Carolina. Anybody ever heard of Montreat College? I'm shocked. No. (laughs) One. There you go, Steve. Thank you. Thank you. No, it's a really small school. They only had 500 undergraduate students. They're an NAIA program, but they had a very impressive international soccer team and a coach who believed in Ezra and wanted uh, him to be a part of building their program for years to come. Well, Ezra's hard work paid off, and after his freshman year at Montreat, he was named to the second team all-conference as a freshman. And then, as soon as the season finished, Coach Dasher resigned. The coach that recruited him, he cited uh, philosophical differences with the administration, and the assistant coach took over. 
But during his sophomore year, Ezra found himself getting less and less playing time. The new coach, who had not recruited him, uh, didn't see Ezra in the same light the coach Dasher did. Ezra was even demoted to the JV team for a few games during his sophomore year. It was very difficult for him to deal with because he loved soccer so much. In fact, you ask him, what, what are you interested in school? He couldn't tell you anything about the classes. He just wanted to tell you about soccer. He loved playing so much. Well, when the season was over, Ezra asked the new coach uh, what he thought his future, Ezra's future with the team might be. And he said, well, to be honest, Ezra, I think you're a, about an average player for our conference, and I feel like uh, the level of play in our conference is growing each year. I think you may start some games. You may be coming off the bench some games. It just depends. And Ezra said, I'm a little surprised, Coach, at where you played me and how I had to go to JV this year because, you know, I made uh, second team all-conference last year. The coach was on the team, but he didn't recruit Ezra. And he said, Ezra, I was... I was kind of shocked that you made second team all-conference last year. So Ezra had to decide, what do I do? Do I stay here? He had worked to get a really good scholarship, not a full scholarship, but for soccer players, unless you're Pelé, then you don't really you know, get a full scholarship. And uh, do I stay here at the school at a place where I'm not sure that I'm wanted and maybe have a miserable final two years, or do I try to transfer? And after praying about it and talking with us, he decided to ask the coach permission to transfer schools. He couldn't just transfer. He had to get permission, almost like uh, you know, getting your boss to release you so then you could sign on with another school. The coach gave him one week. You have one week to find a new school. And at the end of that week, if you're not ready to commit to me or to another program, uh, even if you decide to stay, I'm going to start reducing your scholarship because I want people that are committed to this program, he said. Ezra contacted Judson University, one of the other schools that had recruited him as a freshman. And uh, that was actually his first choice as a college, but financially it was more expensive and they weren't offering as much, him as, as much of a scholarship as Montreat had. He contacted Coach Burke and told him a situation. Coach Burke said, I would love to have you come play with us, Ezra. Offered Ezra more scholarship than he had given him as a freshman. He now had two years of NAIA uh, Division I playing level under his belt. He had really good grades, and Ezra decided to transfer. By the way, before the next season started, Montreat College let that head coach go. He had one year as a head coach. It was his first job as a head coach, and they decided that's not, I mean, it wasn't us, but with just overall, that they wanted to move in a different direction as a school. Last year, Ezra's team finished second in the Chicagoland College Athletic Conference. They made it to the NAIA National Tournament. This year, they weren't as fortunate. They didn't have that big, uh, that well of a record, that good of a record. They didn't qualify for the conference playoffs. They had a lot of freshmen on the team this year. It was kind of a rebuilding team. But Ezra played hard nonetheless and was recognized at Senior Day last week as having a great work ethic and being an asset to the team both on and off the field. And we came to find out that he kind of took a lot of the freshmen under his wing and, and included them not only in, in what's happening on the team, but in the overall life of the university. Jody and I were there to watch him play his final two soccer games in a 16-year soccer career. I remember Jody saying when he was younger, seeing older uh, youth and adults at the soccer fields wondering, Seriously, we're not going to be taking him to soccer games until he's that old, are we? Well, yes, we did. <laughs> Looking back, it wasn't the easiest road for a college athlete. 
When he left Hawaii, he was 8,000 miles away from home. He lost a coach that had recruited him. He wasn't fitting into the scheme of the new coach. He was forced to scramble to find a new school and scholarship in less than one week. And then having to relocate to a different part of the country, to Chicago, and fit into a whole new system that some soccer players had been there for four years. What does this have in common? Ezra was learning to deal with conflict. He had a lot of conflict during his four years as a student athlete in college. And I was thinking, if I could go back and rewrite the story for him and change it to avoid some of the things he had to go through, would I... I'm not so sure. Because you know, the person that we saw last week is different than the person we let go in high school. Right? If he would have had some of the, the, the stuff he had in high school, he'd be like, well, forget it. I'm just going to quit. I'm going to go do something else. I'll just hang with my friends. But when he was 8,000 miles away and forced to rely on God and to pray through what is happening and deal with this challenges that came up, it shaped him and it helped mold him so that he is a different person now as a senior than he was four years ago because of what he had to undergo. It may not have been the way that Ezra would have pictured it, but I am grateful for who he has become. So, welcome to the third week in our installment of the series, The Story of Your Life. And we've been looking at the various elements that make up a good story and seeing how that might help us be more intentional about living better stories in our lives. The good stories don't have to just be in the movies and in the books and on television. So, the basic definition of a story is a character who wants something and overcomes conflict to get it. Today, we'll be working on the overcoming conflict part of this definition And who knows, maybe by the time we finish, you might even begin to think about the conflict and drama and struggles that you've been going through in a different light. We've been borrowing a lot from Donald Miller's book, A Million Miles in a Thousand Years, What I Learned from Editing My Life. It's a book that Miller wrote when he was in the process of turning another one of his books, Blue Like Jazz, into a movie. And it was during that process he discovered the basics of good storytelling and good story writing and decided that he wanted to be more intentional about living a better story with his own life. Using the analogy of paddling a canoe across a lake, Miller writes uh, about the process of choosing to live out better stories. He says this, You throw yourself into the narrative. And you're finally out in the water, and the shore is pushing off behind you, and the trees are getting smaller, and the distant shore doesn't seem so far, and you can feel the resolution coming, the feeling of getting out of your boat and walking on the distant beach. You think that this thing is going to happen fast, that you'd paddle for a bit and arrive on the other side by lunch. But the truth is, it isn't going to be over soon. The reward you get from a story is always less than you thought it would be. And the work is always harder than you had imagined. But the point of the story is never the ending, remember? It's about your character getting molded in the hard work of the middle. The hard work of the middle. This is a crucial insight to remember. It's about how we're being molded and changed by our stories. As Christians... That especially means that we want to become more and more like Jesus, right? We want, to, we want to be the person that God created us to be. And if we're going to become more and more like Jesus, as Pastor Angela said in her prayer, we have to remember that Jesus faced a lot of conflict, a lot of struggle and hardship in his life. Writing guru Robert McKee puts it this bluntly, 
Nothing moves forward in a story except through conflict. To put it another way, conflict is to storytelling what sound is to music. Now, I don't know about you, but I gravitate away from conflict. I don't like it. My first impulse is to avoid it. I'd much rather smooth things over and make everything peaceful. It's so incredible to hear that conflict is the storytelling, what sound is to music. That means you have to have it. You have to have conflict. It's essential in order for us to live good stories in our lives. Don Miller began to choose to be more involved in challenging stories And having a life that wasn't boring, that was dynamic and had purpose and value and the objective was something that was worth living for. And so he decided to embark on a strenuous four-day hike through the Andes Mountains of Peru. Now for him, it began as a way of just getting into better shape and taking on a challenge, but it ended up being so much more. Let's watch as he tells about this endeavor. months ago, we went to Peru, and we did a hike in the Andes, and we did, uh, we started in Cusco and acclimated there and came down to about 7,000 feet, and we hiked for 26 miles, and we topped out at about 14,000 feet, which you have to, you're up there, and you have to get down in order to get out of the altitude. It was just an amazing, amazing experience, and uh, our goal was to arrive at Machu Picchu, the ancient city of Machu Picchu, for sunrise on the fourth day, and um, we were just stoked. Our ambition was awesome. The conflict was certainly hard. I think there were nine miles of stairs in this journey. But early, about three miles in, Carlos, our guide, stops us on this plateau. And we're looking down at ancient Inca ruins. And there are two valleys, one to the right, the sacred valley. And then there's a valley to the left, the valley that we're actually going to go down. And Carlos says, senors, <laughs> he says, Machu Picchu is six hours that way through the sacred valley. It's flat terrain. You just hike along the river. It's the commercial route, the ancient commercial route. So if you were bringing goods to Machu Picchu, you would take this route. But if you were just visiting the city or if you were going to see somebody, you would go to the left, 26 miles, three mountain passes, nine miles of stairs that go straight up. They didn't use switchbacks. Just straight up the mountains. And I said, uh, why don't we go the short way? (laughs) And so we pushed Carlos off the plateau. (laughs) And we went the short way. No. Carlos said, here's why. Here's why they would make people do the 26 miles. Because they wanted them to appreciate their city when they got there. So you couldn't go the short way. And conflict just helps us understand the value In his book, Donald Miller said that Carlos told him there's a number of ways you could get to Machu Picchu, including this train. And most tourists who come take this train, and it follows the river down that sacred valley, right, the six miles that way, arriving at the base of Machu Picchu. And then they can either hike the one mile up or look in the bottom uh, right corner there. You can't read it, but it says a shuttle. You can catch the shuttle bus up to the very gate of Machu Picchu. Don writes, but the people who took the bus didn't experience the city as we experienced the city. As you heard in the video, Don and his friends took the long way, the 26-mile route through the mountains, up those nine miles of stairs, which Don confessed, for a guy that wasn't in great shape like he, 
It inflicted a lot of pain on his body. But the morning of the fourth day of the hike, this is what they saw. This is what greeted them as they came back down into the city. John writes, The pain made the city more beautiful. The story made us different characters than we would have been if we had skipped the story and showed up at the ending the easier way. You see, conflict, difficulty, hardship, it's incredibly, incredibly important in storytelling and in life. So we shouldn't be afraid of conflict. When we go through difficult times, we shouldn't think, oh, there must have been something we did wrong and God is punishing us. That's why we have to go through this. Although, to be honest, sometimes the hardship we go through is based on decisions we make or others make and it impacts our lives. But in general, I believe that God allows conflict in our lives so that we can be shaped and changed in some way. So that, as John said, we might become to understand the true value of something that we didn't know before. Author Shauna Nequist in her book, Bittersweet, puts it this way. I believe that God is making all things new. I believe that Christ overcame death, and that pattern is apparent through life and history. Life from death, water from a stone, redemption from failure, connection from alienation. I believe that suffering is part of the narrative, and that nothing really good gets built when something is easy. I believe that loss and emptiness and confusion often give way to new fullness and wisdom. That's the role that conflict can play in our lives if we let it. Now, we've been following the story of Moses through this sermon series. Moses was a Hebrew baby born in Egypt. He was raised in Pharaoh's household. He fled uh, Pharaoh's uh, compound as a young adult because he had killed an Egyptian. He was content to live out his life as a shepherd in the hills, raising a family. But that's when God appeared to him in the form of a burning bush and gave him a new story, a greater story to live into. A story that would bring freedom to the Hebrew people who were bound by slavery back in Egypt. Well, when we left him a few weeks ago, we had heard Moses' five super excuses, remember, as why he shouldn't go for what God is calling him to do. But God wouldn't take no for an answer. So this week, we get to find out what happens when he starts living out that story and doing what God asked him. Exodus 5, verse 1. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, so that they may celebrate a festival to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should heed him and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. So his very first day on the job, so to speak, Moses encounters conflict. And God had told him, it's not going to be easy. Pharaoh's not going to want to let you go, but I have a bigger plan, and don't worry, I will be with you. Unfortunately, Pharaoh didn't take too kindly to the idea of releasing his large force of slave labor. So as soon as he left, as soon as Moses left, Pharaoh turned to uh, the taskmasters and said, you know what, let's make it even harder for those crybaby Hebrews. We'll give them something to whine about now, right? That no longer can they go and requisition straw to make bricks. They got to go hunt it for themselves and still make the very same amount of bricks that they had to before. Well, when that word kind of trickles down to the Hebrews, uh, you might imagine how frustrated they were and how much more conflict Moses now has from his own people. Like, way to go, boss. 
our, our lives weren't hard enough before you got here. Now we have to work even harder. Like, thank you, but no thank you, right? They had already forgotten how hard their life was before. They had to cry out to the Lord to bring a Savior in, to bring someone that would help them. But sometimes when you're in the midst of struggle and hardship, you forget your own story. You forget what you've been through. You're just focused on the immediate need. Well, Moses then complains to God about the people complaining to him, and God gives him this response. Verse 22. Oh, Lord, why have you... Or, Uh, Sorry, this is Moses to God. Why have you mistreated this people? Since I first came to Pharaoh to speak your name, he has mistreated the people, and you've done nothing at all to deliver the people. So you gave me a job. I went there. It didn't go over well. Not only did it not go over well, but it's even worse for them, and I thought you said you were going to help them, right? And then God has to remind Moses of the bigger picture. Chapter 6, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. Indeed, by a mighty hand, he will let them go. By a mighty hand, he will drive them out of his land. And God had to remind Moses again. I told you, we went over this before. I'll be with you. Don't freak out. Don't worry. I will be with you. But that didn't make it any easier for Moses. Exodus 6, verse 9. Moses told this to the Israelites, that God would be with them. But they would not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their cruel slavery. I think sometimes the circumstances that we're going through in life prevents us from hearing God's words of comfort. They're there, whether in Scripture or through words of others in your life, trying to speak words of encouragement and hope. But sometimes we're so caught up in the drama and the struggle that we miss what's being said. And that's what happened with Moses and his people. So God's plan ahead involved what would become to known as the ten plagues. Every time Pharaoh said no to Moses' request for freedom for his people, God sent another display of his power. It began with the Nile River turning to blood, and then infestation of frogs, and then gnats, and then flies, and then pestilence on the livestock, and then boils upon people, and then hail, and a massive swarm of locusts, and darkness for three days, and eventually the death of every firstborn son whose household did not have the blood of the lamb marked on the doorpost. Time after time, Moses would ask Pharaoh for the release of the Israelites from slavery, and every single time he would say no, until the very last plague, and Pharaoh finally had a change of heart. His own son, Pharaoh's own son, died, and it took that extreme for him to realize the truth about who God was and how powerful he was, and he finally let the people go. Now think about it. What would it have been like for the Hebrews had Moses on day one of the job come down and said, let my people go, and Pharaoh said, you know what, I'm feeling kind of generous today. At, no problem, no problem. In fact, here's a box of watches. Pass them out to all the guys. Tell them thank you for many years of service, and it's been great. Send us a Christmas card. God bless Right? How would the story have changed if on that very first day they just got to walk out to their freedom? 
I don't think it would have had the same impact on them as seeing all those amazing things that God did, the drama, the struggle, the wondering, are we dead? Are we alive? Are we ever going to get out of this? By the time they made it out and Pharaoh let them go, of course, Pharaoh changed his mind again and then sent the army out to try to kill them before they got away. And that was the whole parting of the Red Sea and getting across to safety. Uh, Amazing story. The people would never forget what God had brought them through. And if Moses would have been successful on his very first day, I don't think it would have had the same impact upon those people. They were shaped by the conflict that they shared together. God was the one writing the script, sculpting the story as they went. They couldn't see it all. The book of Job in the New Testament is also a book that helps us come to grips with the issue of conflict. Some scholars think that Job might be the oldest book in the Bible, from when it was actually first written. Job is a very interesting book. It deals with the topic of suffering and that age-old question that so many have asked, why do bad things happen, especially to good people, right? It's a question that we all have asked and wanted to know the answer to at many times in our life. Don Miller says that uh, in his book, he talks about Job, and he says, it's as if God is using this book to say to the world, you know, before we get started, I just want to get something clear. Things are going to get ugly, in life, right? You're just going to have to experience some hard things. Job is a faithful man. He does exactly what God wants. He honors his family. He even prays in case his family did something to dishonor God. He, he intercedes on their behalf, and somehow God allows so much of Job's life to be destroyed. His health, his family, his, his wealth, his property. And for a good portion of the book, Job is asking God, why, why? Why is this happening? Why are you allowing this to to happen to me? And he's got some really good friends, three buddies that come and hang out with him and say, yeah, this is really bad. What did you do? Like, you must have really ticked off God to have this happen to you. He's like, no, no, I don't think I did anything. Well, like, we love you, Job, but obviously you did something. But the answer doesn't come. And at the end of the book, God doesn't explain suffering philosophically philosophically. He doesn't say, well, Job, let me just show how I've been shaping your character. These are the things that you've developed over the course of these however many chapters as you've been struggling. No, God doesn't really answer Job's question at all, except to say, you know, sometimes we as humans just won't know why. There's some things that we won't be able to understand. Life is hard. We all go through difficulties. Some have had a harder road than others. But God sees the bigger picture even when we cannot. And God knows what he's doing. And God told Job, it's really not about you anyway. It's not just about you. There's a bigger picture. Jody was reminding me in between services today about about a time. uh, I've told you my story. The first Sunday I was here about I I thought I was going to go to the Coast Guard Academy and be a, a maritime lawyer. But I failed my entrance exam Uh, my medical exam because of acne. Crazy, bizarre thing. And in the end, I couldn't go to the Coast Guard Academy because of acne. Well, that's when I started hearing God calling me to the ministry. So it turned out good. I couldn't write this story. But it really wasn't about me. Maybe it was about the other people that I would come to serve as pastor. Maybe. But then 18 years after I finished seminary, Uh, at the church that I was just serving most recently, there was a family in our church. Both uh, the mother and the father were graduates of uh, the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. Amazing careers. Their eldest daughter was like 
4.0, top of her class, valedictorian, an amazing young woman with tremendous potential. Her only goal in life, or her main goal, was to go back to the academy in, in, in the tradition that her parents did. And she ended up failing her exam because they found out she was allergic to shellfish, to shrimp. And because of that, there may be some instances when she was deployed where shrimp was just part of the menu and they couldn't risk her having a reaction, so she was rejected from that. And the family said, you know, this could have been a devastating thing for us, but we remember Pastor Jim's story about pimples and the academy, about acne, right? And again, somehow God used what happened to me to make a difference in her life. It's not always about us. Even when we're living it out, our stories aren't always about us. In the end, Job says this to God, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. And Job, at the end of the book, is somehow able to find contentment, even joy, outside of the, of the context of comfort or health or even stability in his own life. He understood the story wasn't about him. And he cared more for the story than he did for himself. Now, it doesn't make it any easier when we have to go through pain and suffering and drama and conflict. But if we remember that God has promised to be with us, even through the darkest valleys that we may walk, we can persevere. And through it all, God will be at work to change us more and more into the men and women that he created us to be. You see, being a follower of Jesus doesn't exempt us from life's problems because conflict is a part of everyone's life. We have problems when we as Christians expect it to be otherwise, when we feel that we should be happy all the time or that our spouses will be the perfect complement for our lives and will never do anything to disappoint us or that the job we have will make us feel complete and significant or that God will end all of our troubles if only we'll have enough faith. Shana Nequist talks about how she's grown in her understanding of that and how before God taught her this, this is what it was like. She says, if I'm honest, I used to pray the way you order breakfast from a short order cook, right? This is what I want, period. This is what I want. Aren't you getting this, God? I didn't pray for God's will to be done in my life, or at any rate, I didn't mean it. I prayed to be rescued, not redeemed. I prayed for it to get easier, not that I would be shaped in significant ways. I prayed for the waiting to be over instead of trying to learn something about patience or about anything else in that matter. Isn't that powerful? I prayed to be rescued, not redeemed, or shaped in significant ways. Can anyone else relate, or is that just my story? Friends, God has never promised to end our troubles. But over and over again, throughout the pages of Scripture, we find that God promises to be with us always and everywhere. There is nothing that we are going through that God is not with us already. The good news, and sometimes we think that's not enough. We know that God says he's with us, but we don't know if that's enough because it doesn't feel like it's enough. It feels like we're going to be overwhelmed and that we will just sink into despair or whatever it may be. But the good news of the gospel is it is enough. God's presence in our story can make a difference even when we don't know that God is there with us. So let us not shy away from conflict or drama or struggles. Let us embrace it. And when difficult scenes arrive, as they will, let us look with expectation 
for how God's going to use that to do something great in our lives. Because believe it or not, it is not about us. God has a bigger, bigger picture. God has a bigger vision. And he knows the story that is larger than what we can possibly imagine. We need to trust that we are like a tree in God's forest. And the story of the forest is always greater than the story of the tree. And then we can walk with confidence, knowing that we may not be able to see it right now, but that God is weaving a story in our lives that is far greater than we can imagine. And it's a story that's filled with love and grace and redemption. A story with a plan and a purpose for each and every tree in the forest. Thanks be to God for the challenges that life brings our way and the opportunity to grow more and more into his likeness. 